Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Praise to the God who reigns above. Jesus' fame grew all around Israel, many people being a fan of his good work, but not willing to give up their pride and accept his salvation. Jesus shared that he would suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and elders of Israel. The religious leaders of the day hated Jesus and wanted him dead. They conspired against him to see how they might have him murdered. Jesus taught the people to beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He told them not to follow after money or any form of covetousness. Jesus then warned his disciples to be ready for when he would return. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 12, verse 49. Now, as we are going through this text, what we saw last week is that Jesus told his disciples they need to prepare themselves for his return. They needed to ready themselves for his return. We read that, and of course, we're reading it almost 2,000 years later, 2,000 years after he said it, since Jesus uttered that command to be prepared for his return. So it's interesting, you know, as he said, be prepared if he comes in the second watch or the third watch. And if anybody qualifies for the third watch, it's us, right? I mean, we're in the third watch. It's been a long day in that sense, waiting for his return. But even though we're in the third watch and it's been a long time, we must not conclude that Jesus waits because he does not care. Not because he doesn't see our struggles or just the evil in the world, and that he, he is indifferent to those things. The Bible teaches us that his heart groans to end all the wrong that's going on and to set up a kingdom of righteousness. See, he waits because he longs for all men to come to repentance. He wants all men to come to repentance, and so he waits. And so we, we must not think he doesn't care, but rather remain vigilant and understand the times in which we live, knowing the time is short. And therefore, preaching the gospel that as many as possible might be saved before the end comes. So as we move here to verse 49, we begin to see that Jesus talks about that day that's coming and that we must be prepared for it. And God will judge the world and bring in and usher in a kingdom of righteousness. Jesus said that just after he talked about cutting people in two and apportioning them with the unbelievers, he says in verse 49, I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with and how I am straightened till it be accomplished. Do you suppose that I am come to give peace on earth? I tell you, no, nay, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, the son against the daughter, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother. The mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. Some of you might think that is not that strange. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And then he said also to the people, when you see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway you say there comes a shower, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, well, there will be heat. And it comes to pass. You hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. But how is it that you do not discern this time? Yea, and why even of yourselves judge you not what is right? So when you go with your adversary to the magistrate as you are in the way, give diligence that you may be delivered from him, lest he hail you to the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer cast you into prison. For I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last might. The Jews of Jesus' day believed that God would judge other nations by one standard and themselves 
by another one. That the very fact that a man was a Jew would be enough to absolve him for his sin. For Jesus in verses 41 through 48 to speak of an unfaithful Jew or even someone from the ranks of the disciples, and I would say see Judas when you think of someone who does qualify for this, someone from on their own ranks being cut in two and judged like a pagan, that was hard to hear. Jesus explains in verse 49 that that's what he came to do. He didn't just come to judge the pagans. He came to judge everyone who's rebelled against God and to end evil. He says, I I am come to send fire on the earth. And literally, it's I came. That's why I came, to send fire on the earth. Now, that seems so different because we think, well, Jesus, didn't you say you didn't come to condemn the world but to save it? I mean, I thought your plan was to go to the cross. Well, God in his foreknowledge knew that his people would reject their Messiah. So the plan from all eternity was that Jesus would come to die for the sins of all mankind first, and then he would come again to rule and reign. But that does not mean that Jesus' offer of the kingdom wasn't genuine. When Jesus came preaching consistently about the kingdom, he came to bring fire. He came to fix the world. But the idea was to experience that, man would have to repent. Man would have to bow the knee to his kingship. So when he started with his own people, he came to his own, the Bible says, and his own did not receive him. They rejected him. And so the offer was genuine. It was real. But they didn't want him to end evil. They just wanted him to end their enemies. The reason that's a problem is because they didn't understand they were part of the evil, that they would need to repent or they'd be judged too because that's what ending evil required. We talk in our world today, and and we bandy about words. Words change over time. And sometimes we force change upon words. And one of the forced changes in our culture is the idea that hate is the opposite of love. The Bible, in its definition of love, which is really the only good definition of love, it does not describe the opposite of love as hate. In our language, we just take words and we, we change what they mean. But in the original Bible languages, every word had an opposite. So I could tell you right now and say, well, what's the opposite of love? I could tell you in that language because the way it's written, it just has a certain prefix or suffix that's added to it that changes what its meaning is. It then becomes the opposite. And the opposite of love is not hate in the scripture. The opposite of love is selfishness. See, we've come up with this idea that hatred is bad. Hatred is bad. Well, Obviously, hating people is bad. Obviously, treating people with violence or being unkind to people because you don't like them because of the color of their skin or whatever it might be, that's bad. But is every kind of hatred bad? The answer to that is no. No, not at all. We read in our scripture today, and we read that scripture reading where we say, Lord, where could, I can't go anywhere from you. You know, you, everywhere I could go, you're there, and you hold me up, and you watch over me. Lord, you know everything about me. You know everything about me, and you still love me. Like we sang that song today, all this that you've done for me, this is who I am now. He says, he erupts, and he says in that, in that chapter, he says, oh, in that psalm, he says, you know, oh, how precious to me are your thoughts, how great are the sum of them all. I mean, Lord, you're just too good. And, you know, we, we read that. I read that in a scripture reading. Everybody's going, yeah, that's so cool. And then you get like two verses down, and he's like, God, destroy those that hate you. I hate them with perfect hatred. And, and you can feel the temperature in the room change. When you get to that in your devotions, you probably do what I do. You just go to the next psalm. <laughs> Let some crazy pastor explain that to me someday. But David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talking about his own failures and, and how 
Lord, your hand hands upon me wherever I go. When I was shaping in iniquity, the lowest parts of the earth. I mean, here you are dwelling in highness and glory and perfection. And here and with all the muck and mire here, I was fashioned and shaped. But you knew about all that. You knew how it all went down. You know how my entire life has gone down and you still love me. How precious to me are your thoughts. And Lord, because of that, I hate evil. I hate evil with perfect hatred is what he's saying. I hate them. I hate that with all the things that are going on. Certainly we know from other scriptures that David's not saying, I just hate people and want to destroy them. He's saying, no, Lord, end evil. That's what he's saying. I hate everything that's going on with a perfect hatred. With What's perfect hatred? Well, that would only be God's hatred. There is a heretical sign on I-4, almost as bad as the eyesore on I-4. God is not angry. That's unbiblical. The Bible says God's angry at sin every single day. He's always angry at sin. I mean, shouldn't he be? Shouldn't he be? Would God be any good if we looked out there and all these horrible things are going on and God just goes, well, you know, people will be people. People will be people. Nobody's perfect. God hates evil. He hates it when people are harmed. He hates it when wickedness is done. When David talks about this perfect hatred, it's God's hatred. And so the Lord said, I came to send fire on the earth, man. Fire. It's a symbol of judgment, and it's emphatic in this. That was the word he emphasized most. I came to bring judgment on the earth. And fire is a symbol of judgment because it doesn't just destroy, it cleanses. It allows something new to be built. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do when he returns. People, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Yes, he is gentle. But there comes a point where God says, enough. And he has to bring the fire. And in Revelation 19, we see after the Lord has done everything, everything, he's sent seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bold judgments to get man to repent. And the Bible says that man shakes their fist at God, blasphemes his name. And so the Lord says, I can't do anything else. The only thing left is judgment. So in chapter 19 of verse 11, we see the Lord Jesus himself dealing out fire. In 1911 of Revelation, it says, and I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. And he that sat on him, upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God, it's Jesus. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen and white and clean. That's us, but we don't do any fighting. We're just there to cheer on our king. For out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. How does he do that? We go down all the way to verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, the Antichrist and all his cronies, and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse. The least intelligent decision you can make in that moment. And against his army, us too. But we don't have to worry. Jesus doesn't even have to send us into action. There's no casualties on our side. For he just takes the beast and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which, with which he had deceived them that received the mark of the beast and them that worshiped his image. These both, these two men, these mighty men who bring the world to the brink of destruction, Jesus just takes them and casts them alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant, they were slain with the sword of him that sat on the horse which sword proceeds out of his mouth. 
and all the birds were filled with their flesh. You say, that's not fire, Will. Turn to Zechariah chapter 14. He gives, John had a vision of this occurring, but Zechariah also had a vision of this occurring. If you're not sure where Zechariah is, find Matthew and take two lefts. Matthew, Malachi, then Zechariah, if you're going backwards. Zechariah in chapter 14, he, he talks about how Jerusalem in the end times will be surrounded by the nations of the world. They will wreak havoc with her. They will bring war against her, and it will be a horrible time for God's people. But Jesus, he will come. He will go forth and fight against them, and he will rescue his people, Israel. So in chapter 14, verse 9, it describes how Jesus will do this. It says in the Lord, verse 9, Zechariah 14, shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. And all the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. And it shall be lifted up. That's all desert there, but it's all going to be turned into this beautiful plain. And it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place, from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, under the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananiel unto the king's winepress. And men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. Their eyes shall consume away in their sockets, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. Now, I didn't mean to spoil your lunch. But the Lord, he will speak and fire. Those fire, the eyes of flame, every, they're just going to melt. They're just going to melt. He will bring fire. It's so important to understand what Jesus is saying here because many today claim that if, if God was real, if he existed, then he'd do something about all the evil in the world. If God was a God of love, then he'd stop all the evil that was out there. Can I tell you something important? Trust me. That is his heart. He longs to stop evil. When evil's done, his heart breaks way more than yours ever will. Because Jesus does care. You know, he longed to bring fire on the earth and to put an end to evil. We see it every time he says things like, oh, wicked generation, how long must I bear with you? How long do I have to hold back judgment to fix this mess? And yet, even with all those statements, there is no clear place that Jesus communicates his desire to end evil than the end of this verse. For Jesus, after he says, I came to bring the fire, but then he says, what will I if it be already kindled? The phrase, what will I, it means how I wish it were already kindled. How I wish it was already over. But it's interesting, if it were already kindled, the word if is that first class conditional clause of reality. This is what he really wanted. He wanted the process of burning to start so it could end. As I said earlier, God hates sin. He's angry at it every day. When Jesus started his ministry, all he talked about was his father's kingdom, but his people refused to bow the knee to him. God knew about all that. He knew about all that. Even though the offer was genuine, the plan was something different because God's desire wasn't to kill everybody. I mean, if Jesus brought the fire then, we wouldn't be here today. So rather than kill everyone, the plan was the cross so that all might be saved through repentance and faith in Christ's sacrifice. The plan was for his wrath to be poured out, not on us, but on himself, so that it wouldn't have to be poured out upon us. And that's why Jesus says, I came to bring fire, and I wish it already started, but I have a baptism to be baptized with. In contrast to bringing God's kingdom to earth with no one left to enjoy it because we're all judged, in contrast to that, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. I am going to be submerged in something. I'm going to be submerged in my own wrath. 
The suffering of the cross, that was the plan. In Matthew chapter 20, we see a good Jewish mom bring her, her request to Jesus for her boys. She says, Lord, my son James, my son John here, I've got a request for them. Would you grant them to sit one on your right hand, one on your left when you are in your kingdom? And Jesus knew where the question came from because he doesn't answer her. He turns to the boys and he says, uh, James, John, uh, you guys able to be baptized with the same cup I'm going to be baptized with? And they were like, ah, oh, Lord, I love, I love little golden goblets with gems in them. I'm all there. Yeah, I can drink from your cup. I mean, what an honor that would be. And the Lord goes, yeah, you are. <laughs> You're going to. But that's, that's not what I'm talking about. The right hand and the left hand my, at my kingdom, it's not for me to give out. My baptism, it's a baptism of suffering. I'm going to die for the sins of the world that others might be saved. And you will give your lives too that others might come to know me. That's what Jesus is talking about. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And he says, how am I straightened till it be accomplished? The word there straightened means to be totally governed by something. It means to have two walls pen you in and you've got one, only one direction you can go. Jesus, he wants to fix the world, but he also longs to save the world. To fix the world, he can't save those who are in it. So with determination, with tunnel vision, he sticks to the plan to save the world through the cross, so there's no fire yet. The tendency is to think, okay, so that's not yet, so everything's all peace and whatever now. That Jesus says, no. That doesn't mean everything's going to be peachy. See, Jesus' death on the cross is going to create a split in the timeline. God's plan for Israel will go on hold, and a Jew, and, and, which would include the disciples in this place, like everyone else, will have to choose between following Jesus or clinging to their old life clinging to their old worship, clinging to their old ways. And when you make that choice to follow Jesus, it will create a divide with those who don't. So Jesus says in verse 51, he says, do you suppose, was that your opinion about the Messiah, that, that I was come to give peace on the earth? I mean, does it shock you that I, I've said that there may be some in your midst that are gonna get cut in two and apportioned with the unbelievers? Does that shock you? I didn't come to bring peace. He says, nay, which is a strong negative Nay. The word give peace there means to bring about harmonious relationships, everybody getting along. He goes, I didn't come to do that. I came to bring rather division, to divide people into opposed and hostile groups. That's what I came to bring. You might hear that and you go, wait a second. I thought, I thought Jesus wants us to to treat people well and to have harmonious relationships? Yes, he does. Jesus certainly, when he said this, he did not mean that we were to be hostile towards non-believers. That's not his point. In Matthew chapter five, verses 43 through 45, Jesus gives us clear instructions in the Sermon on the Mount of, about how we're to treat an enemy. He says, you have heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? So we can be like our Father, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We get rain all the time here in Florida, so it's kind of a bother for us, right? When's the only time that we kind of start thinking about the rain? When, when we have a drought, right? But we don't usually have that here. When you live in an arid place like Israel, rain is always a good thing. And so he sends his son, his rain on, on everybody. In other words, God's kind to everybody. He's good to everybody. So Jesus, he wants us to emulate that behavior. That's not what he's saying here is that we're to be hostile towards unbelievers. 
What Jesus is saying here is that those who decide to follow him immediately cross a line because their primary loyalty now is to him and to no one else, to him and him alone. Sometimes when I'm challenging someone about their need to get serious in their walk with God, they say, you need to put Jesus first. So what about my family? Isn't blood thicker than water? It may be, but the blood of Christ is thicker than any other bond we have. Your entire friends or loved ones or work environment, whatever, is, is going down a path that Jesus says you're not supposed to go down. You gotta stick with Jesus. And that's gonna create a divide. That's gonna create hostility. That's what he's talking about. And the cross, it splits even the closest relationships. Whatever disagreements the Jews had with each other, Sadducee, Pharisee, whatever, when push came to shove, a fellow Jew was family and everyone else was the enemy. Now that wasn't unique to Judaism in Jesus's day. Many cultures throughout time have had that mindset and even families can have that mindset sometimes. I can be mean to my spouse, but don't you dare lift a finger to criticize my beloved, right? But the cross changed that dynamic. When I place my trust in Christ, I may be rejected, ostracized, and even persecuted by my own family. And just in case, again, we thought this wouldn't affect even the closest relationships in a family, Jesus includes these here. A father and a son. I mean, there, there was no, no tighter relationship back then than, than a father and a son, a son to his father. Mother against daughter, daughter and mother. Mother-in-law, daughter-in-law. I know it sounds weird in our culture where those tend to be negative sometimes, but not, in that culture, it was never that way. I mean, when you were a daughter-in-law, like when you were coming to a family, there was no one. You'd, it's not like you came into, you know, if your husband had all these brothers and they were nice guys and you hung out with, no, you didn't hang out with anybody. The women and the men didn't interact. The only person that you clung to to find some sense of normalcy in your new life, some sense of belonging was your mother-in-law. She was the one you, you dwelt with. She was the one you got close to. She's the one that you cried on her shoulder when you missed your home. But even that, even that might be broken up when you decide to follow Jesus. Unfortunately, some in the church have used these verses throughout history to justify persecution of non-believers. That is not what Jesus is teaching. If you're mistreating a non-believer or retaliating against an enemy, you're in sin and you need to repent. Jesus did not do that. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, I believe, verse 21, 1 Peter 2, for even hereunto were you called. And this is what our calling is. Say, I've got a calling from the Lord. Well, here's one you can know for sure you have a calling. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. What are his steps? Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him that judges righteously. That's your calling as a Christian. That's your calling as a Christian. <laughs> Look at First Peter chapter 4. First Peter 4, I think verse 12. He said, Beloved, those who are loved by God. This is why we can do this. is because we, we know that we're loved by God. He says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. I always read that verse and I chuckle because like, like you ever see those verses in the Bible where it says, hey, don't be ignorant about this. You can guarantee whatever follows after that the church is probably going to be ignorant about it because we don't pay attention. That's why Jesus warned us, pay attention to this, don't be ignorant on this. And this is one of those verses which I always kind of chuckle at because 
We act like that. It's, for example, the New York legislature passed a law that they can now do abortions up to the very moment of birth, right? Horrible, wicked thing, wicked idea, okay? And I realize that there are some out there going, oh, you're overblowing this will. It only is if it's a mother's life's in danger and that's at the discretion of the doctor. Yes, like every doctor we've ever had here is honest. Like every doctor here is, is sinless and never, never thinks to himself, you know, I can make an extra whatever amount of money by doing the abortion. None, none ever think that way. We've never had a doctor in our country who ever performed illegal abortions and sold the body parts. We've never had that, right? Every mother out there is, is always thinking about what's in the best interest of, of her child, right? Those things aren't true. We've signed a document of slaughter. But here's the crazy thing. The crazy thing is that we're shocked about it. You're really shocked the New York legislature passed that? And then we get angry and we lash out. That's not Christ. I had somebody come up to me and they said, after I preached this in the first service, they said, you know, my first thought when I saw that was those poor people, they are storing up wrath unto themselves. That's a better response. Following Jesus comes with a cost. There is a tendency to think that everything will be happy and comfortable when accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. But that is not the marks of true discipleship. And while a life lived in Christ is full of joy and wonder, it can be quite costly in the eyes of the world. Losing jobs, friends, family members, comfortability, easy retirement and living. To follow after Christ is to deny ourselves, to die to ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow Him. This is the call to discipleship. But know that to see the power of Christ's resurrection in our life, we must also bear the fellowship of His sufferings. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m.